the list will go Yeah, but both of these gentlemen, again, they are um, just profound. Gordon James will join, join us later. I met Gordon through working with Derek Barnes on his two uh, uh, books, uh, Crown Ode to the Fresh Cut, and I Am Everything. But Gordon is, is one of the premier illustrator of, of children's books. He, he's a fine artist uh, as well. So uh, these are the three gentlemen that we have that's going to be dropping some science on us today about the importance of children's, I'm sorry, literature for Black boys and young men and the importance of having it in our homes, most importantly, in our schools, in our public libraries, any place that we congregate, Black boys are there, you know, we should have uh, books that celebrate their existence and, and, and who they are. You know, Black Boy Joy, Black Boys Live, all of that. We want to make sure it's being celebrated. And that's why we're here to kick off this inaugural conversation around this, uh, uh, like you said, literary hub for Black boys. Uh, Tim, go ahead and, and kick us off with some questions for our esteemed panelists. Sure. So I think before we talk about what's happening now, I kind of want to take it back because a, a lot of times we talk about where we are now, but, you know, there's the pro, the things that happened to us, like as we were growing up and growing into literacy. So when you think back about your childhood and things like that, like what was your reading experience like in school and with libraries and things like that? What was your literacy experience? You want me, you want me to go first, Tony? Uh, who, since, since I'm the oldest here. <laughs> I'm deferred to the master. Okay, okay. Um, growing up, I really loved to read. Um, and um, I read what was available uh, uh, to me. Um, my parents were not readers. I'm the oldest in my family. Well, actually, I'm the second oldest, the oldest son. Uh, my father used to read the newspaper every morning, but there were very few books in our household. But I used to go to the school library, the small library in our all black school uh, to read. My problem was that there were not books that uh, had characters in them who looked like me or had experiences uh, to which I could relate, you know? So I had to find ways to uh, engage myself in reading about other folks' stories and finding the humanity in those stories that I could connect with. But uh, I always love to read um, and I don't know where it came from because again, my family uh, was, was not a family of readers, mm -hmm. but I just love to read. Um, again, I think it's so important to have books that uh, all kids can relate to and they can find themselves uh, in, the, in those books. When, when I was, um, I'm like Wade, I didn't have a family, um, a household full of books and stuff. And not that many readers that I could identify except for my grandmother. And you know, she had a big giant Bible and she would read paperback novels and stuff, but there wasn't really that many books in the household. So I didn't have that habit, I was mainly, you know, a TV watcher, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my form of accessing, I guess, stories. Um, so it's like twofold, my, my introduction into reading. And one of them was a friend of mine growing up, a close friend of mine. We were like in elementary and junior high school together um, named Troy Ward. He used to work for New York City Transit and passed about, I think over 10 years ago, but, um, he would steal libraries. <laughs> he would steal books from the libraries and he'd be like, yo, yo, Tony, you gotta read this, you gotta read this. <laughs> and they were books like Down These Mean Streets by Perry Thomas, um, Man, Child in the Promised Land by mm -hmm. Claude Brown, and Daddy Was a Numbers Runner uh, by Louise Merriweather. And so those are, that was my um, introduction to reading stuff that I could see you know, where I come from reflected. And, but it wasn't until um, the ninth grade when I went to junior high school 101 in the Throsnick Housing, you know, projects, the area in the Bronx. And we were supposed to do a book report. Um, I didn't do the book report uh, because I was kind of lazy and I didn't have the habit of reading and stuff like that. So I, I failed that. It just turned out 
it just so happened that half the class failed the assignment. They either didn't do it or they just did a lousy job. So our English teacher, his name was Mr. Delos Reyes. He was our favorite teacher. He handed out the list that he gave in the beginning of the school year again and said, we, you have this last chance to do it. I didn't want to disappoint him nor my grandmother who raised me. So I went to the library. The library was a place that we used to go to to hang out. <laughs> in the summer, we escaped the, 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 the heat for the air conditioning. In the, in the winter, we escaped the cold. So we never took out books. I didn't know how to look up a book. So I had to ask the librarian if, you know, how to find a book. And so there was this title called um, uh, Flowers for Algernon by Danielle Keyes. And I asked her, how would I find this book? And she taught me how to use the card catalog. I looked it up and I found it and I, it was like a magic trick. I couldn't believe it was there. So I took it out and that was the book that really got me hooked. And I started reading a lot after that. I did it did a book report, I got an A plus on it. And that's, that's the book that made me want to be a writer. But then, you know, fast forward some years later, it was James Baldwin's essays that taught me how to write, actually. Mm. I, I was, you know, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to add to what Tony is saying. Actually, Tony, uh, it wasn't until I got to Southern University uh, that I was exposed to uh, all the great black writers and, and the body of literature. And that's when I uh, was determined to become a writer. Uh, in high school, I used to write, uh, and I shared it in my memoir that's coming out in October. I wrote plays and short stories, and, but I didn't think that I could uh, make a career writing, you know, because I didn't, I couldn't identify with any other writers that weren't James Baldwin, all these wonderful writers, their books were yeah. not in the library uh, that I went to. It was all these these European classics and, and all of that, Western Western uh, literature that I was exposed to at an, at an all-Black school, believe it or not. Uh, but it wasn't until I got to Southern University uh, that I really recognized that there were a lot of wonderful Black writers who had made careers uh, out of the profession that I sort of thought that maybe I could, I could tackle this as a career as well. And um, I just read, I mean, I just read like crazy, man. I read everything I could get my hands on. You know, the black arts movement was really uh, at its peak during, during that time in, in the, the mid to late sixties and early seventies. And, you know, Nikki Giovanni and Hakeem Arbutin were producing um, a wonderful bodies of work. So, I just, I just like delved into it uh, like never before. Well, you know, I had a college experience too. I don't know if you and, and Patrick know about this story, but I went to Baruch College right after the army. I went into the army to make money to go to college, right? So I went to Baruch College, which is part of the university system located like 23rd and Park Avenue. And my first English professor was Addison Gale Jr the chief proponent of the black aesthetic movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he assigned the black poets, he assigned Richard Wright, he assigned, you know, James Baldwin. And he used to talk all the time about his friendship with Baldwin and how Baldwin, he called him Jimmy, he said, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy gave me tickets to fly, to, to stay in his house at the, home, the south of France. So he would, you know, and I couldn't believe it because James Baldwin was my main man at the time, right? So my mind was blown. All the other students were intimidated by him. <laughs> he, was, he was just so cool. And he always asked us questions and we were like perplexed because, you know, people weren't reading. And they didn't know who he was. I ran to the library, you know, and got all his books, you know, the school library. And I was like, well, I can't believe this. So every day after class, I would go up to him and talk to him and stuff like that. And he was very helpful to me. I went to his funeral actually and one of my other professors, um, Sandra Towns, who he was close to, she introduced me to Haki at um, Addison Gale's funeral and said, Haki, you got to publish Tony Medina. And he eventually did, along with you. <laughs> How did y'all um, put pen to paper consistently and, and believe that, like, I can kind of do this? Like, what did it take to get in that habit? For me, I, I think that writing um, is often a gift that we're given. Uh, that gift needs to be nurtured and developed. 
Uh, now I'm not saying that uh, one cannot uh, develop the skill, but I think some people are born with the gift. Uh, I sort of believe that I was born with that gift. Uh, when I was eight, nine years of age, I was writing. And I've been writing all of my life, whether poetry or short stories or, or plays or, or novels. Um, so for me, um, it's not difficult to, to actually do the writing itself. Uh, my challenge now is because I'm running a publishing company, it's having the time to really um, set aside to write what I want to write. The pandemic, um, although negative in so many other ways, uh, was a positive for me because, uh, because I couldn't really travel <laughs> like I normally do. Uh, I was here at home mostly. Uh, I have written so much so much and uh this period of time has been been a blessing so i guess to, my answer would be um it's almost like a singer you know whether you get a contract you know uh, to record a song or whatever if god has put that gift in you you're going to exercise it i mean there are a lot of great singers who are singing in church they will never put out a record you will never see them on tv but they have this gift uh, they've been blessed with, and they bless people uh, with it at church or at different occasions, you know. So I see writing the same way. Obviously, what we want to do is to get published and get our work made public and to make a, a living at what we do. But if I were not really making a living at writing, I think I would still be writing. Um, Wade is absolutely right. It, I feel like it's a gift um like it's a mission you know we were born to do but you know um i just want to make a, a weird analogy you know there are people you know i come from family members who you know addicted to drugs and stuff like that but if they had never been exposed to such a drug they would never be you know they would never find out that they were they had this disease of addiction um what you and um as what you, Tiffany and Patrick does, and also uh, Wade and Cheryl do as institution builders around literacy is that you make it possible for kids like me growing up to be exposed to the stuff that you may have that gift in you, but you know, it's not nurtured, it's not, you know, so that, once it, right. gets, it gets the proper nourishment, it, it's, it's allowed to flourish. So with me, it was reading, it was being challenged by that teacher, being taught by that librarian and reading that book by Danielle Keyes and falling in love with it. And that was my passion. That was the thing that I was so passionate about. And that's why it's so easy for me or to write because it's something I love to do. And, and that's it's something that I do the best out of anything besides complain like a New Yorker. So I want to follow up on that. You said the exposure. Is that one reason that you do so much work in the community? Because you see these young people coming to your events just thirsty. It is. I mean, that's what you, that's what your organization is all about. And you, you grabbed me up, up in, uh, when we were in Georgia at the Black Writers Conference in Atlanta right. back in the 90s. Yeah. And, you know, I was doing, I was doing what I naturally do. And it's to, uh, expose kids to the love of reading and writing. And also, we always say reading and writing. It's never about just one thing over the other. Mm -hmm. no. I want to I talk about like role models because a lot of times there's this like culture of reading and for some people, they're in an environment where they've had that pattern long enough. But can you think about like who would be the importance of that? And then who was that reading role model for you or did you not have one I don't know you know yeah growing up I, I did not uh, have um, a role model in, in terms of literacy but what I did have was uh, a community that encouraged me to be my best um, whatever I, I tried to do uh, I got support when I was in the ninth grade 
I wrote a play uh, for um, my American history, well, for, for world history class. Uh, it was a play about democracy versus communism. Now I got this idea, I wanted to write this play because I thought this was the best way to really show the difference between democracy and communism. And I went to my uh, teacher who was teaching that particular class and I asked him if I could write the play. Nobody had ever done that in my school before. And he said, do you think you can do it? I said, I think so. And so he gave me a shot at doing it. I wrote the script, brought it back, showed it to him and uh, he, he read it and he said, you know, this is really good. And so we actually mounted that play. That play. So, I mean, this support like that encouraged me to continue uh, to write, you know, and, and um, there are other people in my small town where I grew up who encouraged me that way. Now, I mentioned that it's not particularly uh, related to literacy per se, but it's the encouragement to dream the encouragement to develop the gift that you have that keeps you moving forward, keeps you working, and also providing that that hope that something can come from what you're doing, you know. And so that's that's how I would sort of describe it for me. Uh, and I think without that support, without that encouragement, um, I would not be uh, the writer that I am today. Yeah, my experience is similar to Waves in that. I didn't have models for reading, you know. I'm thinking of um, Lucille Clifton poem, come celebrate with me where she said, I had no models. <laughs> I didn't have models for, you know, reading, but I did have a lot of support. So when I did read that book, Flowers for Algernon, and finished it that weekend um, and wrote the book report and had a revelation that I wanted to be a writer, I announced it to my family. One of my aunts bought me a desk, a proper desk. Another aunt bought me a manual typewriter so I could, you know, fulfill my dreams of being a writer. And I've always had that support. Even um, going to college and having Addison Gale Jr. And I had the idea of doing a magazine called Writers of Color. And he said, Tony, whatever you want. I know all the writers. <laughs> Just tell me who you want and I'll get you them. I said, wow. So, and I had, you know, Sandra Towns as well as being supportive. And then when you get into the, um, you know, any Patrick could tell you that way could tell you, you get into the um, the writing community, the poetry scene, let's say in New York. And the elders are there, like Sam Anderson was one of my mentors. And then of course, yeah, Baraka, yeah, 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 Baraka yeah. becomes a mentor to me, mm -hmm. Sonia Sanchez and uh, Miguel Agreen and stuff. I mean, it was Amina Amiri who introduced me to Miguel in at Seiku Sandiata's uh, party who said, we need, you need to meet Miguel. He lived in a penthouse mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. Bronx. So it was, it's always like that. You know, you're gonna always find a community waiting for you. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So what do we do today when we're fighting against technology and video games and things like that to, for kids to find those communities and those mentors? What do you think is missing or what do you think needs to happen that's not happening? I don't think it's an either or. Go ahead, go ahead, Wayne. No, 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 go ahead, because you, 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 uh, you're teaching, so you're in more direct contact with, with young people. Yeah, I think we need to just embrace the technology to a certain extent and to kind of like utilize it. We got to meet, you got to meet people where they are, you know, most of the time, you know, be it ideologically, be it, you know, technologically, we have to kind of meet folks where they are. Like, you know, in the revolution, you, you know, let's say Cuba, the Cuban revolution or any type of revolution, let's say where the people are, you know, very religious, you can't try to take away their religion. You know what I mean? That doesn't make any sense. Right. right. That becomes right. The, uh, the portal in which you connect with them. So mm -hmm. I think we have to just, uh, just come up to speed and try to connect with the students where they are, the young people where they are, because they're the ones who are gonna lead us into the future. Yeah, and I think, I think it's a mistake to present it as if they do have to give up some things that they really right. like. You're gonna lose them. You're gonna lose them. What do you think, um, they are, there's always that um, deficit approach to the statistics we hear about um, 
young black boys and reading scores and things of that nature. We know that we need representation in books. We know that, you know, um, we need more cultural responsive teachers. We, we, I mean, everybody's saying this, but we are also fighting those same things with cultural responsiveness now in classrooms and things of that nature. What can teachers do nowadays to try to support, you know, um, our, our boys, you know, like within this environment that's so contentious about uh, us understanding our identity to be able to attach to these books and things like that? I think one mistake um, that teachers make, uh, and I'm not a teacher, I know you are, uh, and Tony, I think we misunderstand boys a lot. Boys, has a, boys have a lot of energy, uh, they're, they're energetic, they, they wanna move, but in the school system, we want to like put them in a position and insist that they remain there. Fine. And that, and that the only way you can learn is that you sit quietly in, in, in your seat and for 40 minutes or whatever period of time. And if you move left or right, you're gonna be chastised for it. Mm -hmm. So I just think that the environment uh, for uh, facilitating the learning for boys is really not conducive to it. Um, boys, I believe, have a different learning style. I know when I was growing up, I was I was active, but it did not mean that I did not want to learn or did not like reading, you know, but sometimes my mind would wonder, I would think about the baseball game that was on last night, you know, but it does, again, it didn't mean that I was not interested uh, in reading. I think the other thing that really needs to happen, um, there are, uh, before the pandemic, there were growing numbers of, uh, of programs that were catered to boys, literacy programs that were catered just to boys. Uh, there were several in Philadelphia, uh, a few in LA, where men actually, you know, sat down, read books, discussed books with boys. And I thought that, I think that that's a great way to connect uh, because there's a way that we as men uh, can relate to boys and inspire them and encourage them uh, that the school system can't do. Uh, another thing that started to happen too was that there were a number of male, black male organizations that had adopted schools. So they actually went to uh, school systems to be there to be mentors, uh, to assist, um, and just be a presence uh, in the lives of some of the boys who some of them don't have male role models. So I think these are some of the things that that, are, that can take place and hopefully will continue once this pandemic is over. But I think the direct connection is, is really key. I think teachers need to do a few things. And, you know, you have teachers that do, you know, they think outside the box. They go beyond the curriculum. They challenge the curriculum. They, be, they make it more inclusive. They reach out to organizations like Patrick's, yours, to get them involved with the students. But I remember when Patrick um, brought me out a couple of years ago to um, Dallas for the African-American Museum. He had a program there. Um, his, his Say It Loud had a program there. And um, I read some poems from my book, 13 Ways Looking at a Black Boy. And I think from Alfonso Jones. And, there were kids there that he brought there that, or the parents brought there, they were really, you know, boys, they were really not into reading and stuff like that. But after I read the type of stuff mm -hmm. that I read, you could see them light up, you know, um, and they totally connected with it. So you, you gotta find ways that are gonna reach them and connect with them. Also, the biggest thing is, you know, what, what Wade and Cheryl does as publishers, they bring black books out into the world, you know, and also Latino based books out into the world, right? And so they, the publishing house, the big giant publishers, they don't do that for the most part. And even though we have this little slight bump from the Black uh, Lives Matter movement that we had jump off over last summer, um, it's still not enough. You know, there's still a tremendous void there with, with the books that are being published, you know, in the mainstream 
and also that which is being taught because they should be learning about the Harlem Renaissance, uh, but also the black, um, you know, the, the black arts movement, you know, mm -hmm. they should know about all the poets of the black arts movement. They should know about the poets of today. So I think that there has to be, you know, a various uh, multiple ways in which to tackle this problem. Yeah, and I think too, one of the, one of the things that we've seen over the years, um, Tony, you're absolutely right. We, we have taken our books to the community and to schools. For example, we, we've gone to PTA meetings, you know, where we uh, not just present our books, but we talk about an array of books that are available uh, that relate to the Black experience or that are multicultural in nature. And oftentimes we find that teachers, in addition to the parents, don't even know these books exist. They don't even know, you know. So it's connected. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's it's like the 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 uh, the nitty gritty. I'm trying to think of a word to describe, but the, the nitty gritty way of getting these books into the hands of not just the students, but the hands of the teachers and also parents. And we've also conducted. Um, uh, workshops about reading, you know, establishing uh, a family reading tradition and really share steps and ways to, to do that, you know. So, and, and again, we found that a lot of people just don't know. They really don't know. I remember Cheryl, Cheryl did a, um, um, uh, a reading to a, a group of mo uh, unwed mothers in New York. And her focus obviously was reading the book that she uh, had, but she found that she had to also show that mother how to hold that baby because no one had ever showed, show, uh, showed her how to do it. So she had to show her how to hold her own baby, you know, and then read, read to, to them. So a lot of it is teaching, educating, sharing, mentoring, we just have to, we have to do much, much more of it. And just to big, to, to big Ben quickly on that, when after George Floyd was murdered, right, by the police, and it became this international um, Black Lives Matter movement um, last summer, you, you had all of these educators to include media specialists, so, you know, AKA librarians. Um, they were saying, you know, what books should we be, should we be reading? What books should we be teaching? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're asking us about racism and all this stuff, like, what the hell? I mean, you, you're the same. <laughs> And so, you know, my books, my last books, um, 13 Ways and Alfonso Jones, they were selling like crazy. Mm -hmm. I was getting big royalty checks and stuff like that. I mean, it's like they didn't even know that, that our stuff existed. That's right. That's they didn't right. bother to do a little cursory search. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. like Patrick mm -hmm. has to bang his head against the wall to get these, to, to get these teachers in these schools to open up to Black literature and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think but you know what, what, it, what it is, what it is, Tony, um, as it is in publishing, too many people who are in position of power are wedded to old traditions and they don't want to change. Like Hollywood. They do, exactly. They don't want to change. And, and it's like, you know, butting your head against the wall to get them to really understand that, that there are new ways to do things, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it is a struggle. Project has to, he has to write a thousand grants every year just to get a hand, you know a little bit of money to do programs. Yeah. 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 It's ridiculous. Hey, they should, they should be they should be embracing you know yeah. these ideas. Yeah, I want to play out for Tony's question. Yours way the point you were trying to make too. Tony mentioned the uh, infusion of all these requests that came because of George Floyd and a lot of books were sold. The way the numbers. And particularly be able to play out to respond to this as well. But when we look at the statistics, it still was a minute number of books being sold, you know, uh, and published by the publishing industry. Wait, could you just, just give our, uh, our families and community just an idea of the, the ridiculous number of uh, small number of books published for about uh, uh, Black uh, uh, children? And, and, it's, 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 a, it's a ridiculous number. 
we can't you hear. Sorry, there are thousands of books that are published uh, uh, every year by publishing companies, mostly mostly by major publishing houses. There are about there are five really uh, major publishing houses that dominate the industry. Um, but roughly, and I don't have the statistics at hand now, but I think probably six to seven percent of the books that are published are written and illustrated by by black uh, authors, black book creators. Uh, there still are uh, a large percentage of books about the black experience that are written by people other than black people, you know, and because it's easier for other folks to uh, get a contract to to write a book than it is for, for us. Now, I, I must say, though, Pat, that there has been some progress. Yes, because yes, I want to talk you know, about that, the optimism. There's some optimism I, I want to talk about. Yeah, there, there has been progress. But, but, I, I think, but, but I think we must be aware that the progress that has taken place has come about because of our work. Yes. We, we have been our best advocates. And when I say we, I'm talking about Black book creators, people like you, Patrick, who are selling uh, our books and, and getting the word out through your programs. Um, but I think what we must be aware that this cannot be another trend. Right. That, that's what I was going to say. Another trend. Because Wade was there. I mean, I think Wade and um, uh, who your whole crew back in the day in the 60s and 70s uh, evolved, emerged out of the fact that, you know, you had this little bump in, in publishing black books in the 60s and 70s. Right. And then it, it, it waned again. And then there was another fight to get more. In the 90s. Now again, but then it's going to wane again. That's the problem, you know. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, just just to to illustrate what Wade is talking about in terms of the numbers, I was a judge um, along with um, Marilyn Nelson, the poetry judge, uh, of the Lee Bennett Hopkins Poetry Award last year, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We got tons of books from the publishing, ma mainly from the big giant presses and also independent presses of, uh, to read through, to sift through and to pick the winner and stuff like that. I would say that like at least 99% of those books were white authors. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. You understand what I'm saying? But they were a lot, a lot, a lot of books published. Even yep. in terms of representation, in terms of characters, you will see animals threefold compared. Yeah, exactly. To main yeah. characters, play. animals of, get of children of color. Right. Yeah. You, you check. Animals. You check the bestseller list for children's books, and you see what's selling. Right. Animal books. A lot of them were animal books, and I couldn't stand them. You know, I was like, oh, yeah. uh, how many more could I read? You know. <laughs> so then I'm gonna. So in terms of teaching and librarianship, there's so few of us of color, right? Because we understand, you know, representing ourselves. When you talk about how you didn't see a book till the rep representation probably until high school, right? In terms of learning about James Baldwin and, and just kind of thinking of these things, what, what, do, what needs to happen with the majority population in terms of this, you know, because if 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 BIPOC librarians and teachers are only representing maybe 13% of the population, you know, of, of the teaching and library population, look how hard it is for us to get our voices heard, right? So we have to get that majority to be introducing those books to you starting in preschool when they say that pipeline happens, right? That pipeline needs to be with these teachers and these librarians introducing these books that represent kids, right? And that's what I see as something that needs to happen. It needs to start immediately. Those story time programs, they need to have representations of black boys. They need to have cultural, all cultural representation, but these are the things that, you know, um, have to be brought to their attention. You know? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I think, um parents, black parents must be more involved and more active. There are many of them doing the hard work and, and, and I applaud them, but we need more. Think about this, look at the pressure that these uh, white races put on the school system to get changes that they want. 
I mean, it's all like an all-out war. That's how involved and engaged they are in getting their point of view or their positions advanced uh, within the school systems or wherever. You know, so we have to be as determined uh, as they are, because the thing that's starting to happen now is that this pushback is starting to be revved up about uh, stopping um, uh, this progress that has been made in, in book publishing. Um, you see it in, in, in Texas. I think I was reading on Facebook where uh, Nikki Grimes said that the school system had banned her book, one of her books. Sure I'm afraid of. Yeah, yeah. And so, so this it's, book. It's, I'm afraid for this book. Let's be clear. Oh, you, let me Sorry. tell you, we we <laughs> we were in um, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. This was a couple of years ago, um, doing a book tour for for We Rise, and uh, we went to this this elementary school. Uh, and when we got there, the principal met us and said that she was thinking about counseling our presentation to the students. It was a mixed, mixed school. And she said that she had gotten so much negative feedback from white parents that she was afraid to go forward with it. So Cheryl and I talked with her and told her what we were uh, going to do. And so she, she said, well, listen, I think I'm just gonna go ahead and do it. I said, you should take a stand, take a stand. And so she did it. And it went extremely well. All the kids love what we did because we're not there to 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 um, to pulverize white people. We we're just talking about you know what's in our book, you know, and sharing that story. Um, but the point about about this is that a lot of white parents are fighting back and saying we don't want uh, th this kind of material in our schools, you know, That's and they are pushing. The, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, they want they want this this Western approach to, to continue. Um, and if we don't recognize that this push is going to come, because I think you know, the, the whole social uh, justice movement because of George Floyd and all the others that were killed over the last couple of years, it's starting to wane now. You know, so a lot of these 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 white businesses and corporations that were donating money, that's basically what they did was donating money. And, and didn't make any any sizable changes, they're moving on to something else. Yeah, well, you know, in the, the 60s, right, you had this whole notion of building institution, institution building, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to do both institution building and infiltrate the institutions, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I come out of the, the writing community where everybody I know is practically, oh, MFA, MFA, MFA. And, all, you know, students wanting to go MFA. And I try to say, look, let me tell you something. MFA, it's all right, but it ain't all that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are no jobs waiting for your ass at the end of that, right? The thing is this. <laughs> you have to make being a media specialist, a.k.a. a librarian, sexy. Yeah, yeah, that there you great, go. That is a great profession. You yep. should be majoring in library science. Why? Because once you get into a library, you are in charge of an institution. That's exactly right. You can yeah. do your own programming. Yeah. You can select books and do all that stuff. I'm sorry, Tiffany. Go ahead. No, I was, no, yeah, no, you're right, Tony. This is you're you're right. We do, but we need to see, we need to have people uh see us as well. I think one of the things great um, Dr. Dr. Goldie Mohammed has a book called Cultivating Genius and she talks about the history in our community of um, creating spaces for literacy when others did not, right? Mm -hmm. Most of us don't even know when we weren't allowed to read, we made spaces to read out even in spite of that or despite that the we were still doing that. What can we do to, to bring that type of, you know, like in, engagement and advocacy and all that back to our community so that we, we don't have to wait on that. We, we can be doing this ourselves. What You're more doing it. You're doing it. Yeah. You and Patrick are doing it. Plus, you can do these things like we're doing now online. You can have book clubs online on Zoom and stuff. Reach global people. Have conversations across countries and stuff and communities. Yeah, I think I think too. You, you're, you're absolutely right, Tony. But I think also we have to 
uh, find ways to engage some of those organizations uh, in our uh, communities uh, that have a lot of power and a lot of clout and a lot of influence. Um, I was uh, talking to someone the other day about um, the NAACP Image Award. Uh, when they first started, they didn't include literature or literacy. It was only for television and, and film. And so a group of us um, started a campaign to complain about that and said that literacy should be a part of the awards. And it took several years to get them to see that point and they included it. Now, the first year they included it, they only did adult books. So we had to go back and say, okay, you gotta include children's books. So what I'm saying is that we have to really push those institutions and organizations in our community to step up too. There are so many of them that are really positioned to do so many amazing things. I mean, some of them are doing it, but more need to be involved. Like, look at the, look, look at the role that the Divine Nine played in, in supporting um, our vice president. I mean, they were enormously uh, important to her efforts, right? Um, you have 100 black men. Patrick, you and I have talked about this uh, to, to some degree. 100 black women, some of them do have literacy programs. Well, suppose every chapter of 100 black men had a literacy program in the cities where they are. Or 100 black women. Black Congress made this a, little, uh, a major emphasis. I think especially with the coronavirus and we're still fighting through this in schooling, it needs to be like one of the top priorities politically and our agendas and everything to have literacy there so that it can get to these local organizations. Yeah, yeah. What Tony, very quickly, what Tony was saying is, is imperative and important. Make it sexy because yeah. that, that's the key. It's marketing. How are we marketing these books to our community? What is it? We unfortunately don't have the superstar athletes who market sodas, Gatorade, uh, all the you know, McDonald's, pizza. They, you know, they, they, they market food to us, but how can we get them or just ourselves? How do we come with creative ideas and concepts, like Tony was saying, to make it sexy for these young people out there who want to read? Go ahead, Tony. You know what, though? I, I, I think I, I'm agreeing with you guys, but I'm remembering um, some of my school visits and the schools that really uh, promoted the visit ahead of time right. had posters up, you know, uh, uh, made announcements. And when we came to the school, those kids were on fire, man. You know, yeah. they, they, you know they wanted me to they wanted wanted me to autograph point. their hands yeah. and stuff like that. So, so I mean, we we it can be done, but I think that we as a society we don't value literacy and books the way we do sports and, and, and uh, movies and television. That's yep. the problem. That's, so, that's, that's about making it sexy. Yeah, exactly. The promotion <laughs> stuff. But I have one more point to lay on the table before we move on. And it has to do with what we just been talking about. Remember, when we talk about literacy in our community, we cannot um, forget our brothers and sisters behind bars and our young people behind bars. And, and because, we, you know, the prison industrial complex has made it very yeah. complicated for us. We have so many yeah. people there. And I think this literacy reach into, because I come from, you know, parents that were both incarcerated. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. This reach into the juvenile detention centers and the prisons with literacy and books and getting them to write and also including them perhaps in these um, uh, Zoom type of discussions and stuff like that. It, it, it helps prevent more of our kids getting swept up and sucked into the um, the prison system. Yeah, yeah. well, in fact, no, go ahead, I'm sorry. And that the prison system has been fighting the type of books that reflect them within there, so they don't even have access to books that, you know, could have that influence as well. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, they-, they quickly, could... I want to shout out to Jeannie Thompson, who is in Alabama, basically Montgomery. Her program is dynamic, Jeannie Thompson. Get the name over it offhand, but I'll pick up before we get off. But she's doing the work you're talking about, Tony, taking creative writing, poetry inside uh, the Jupiter system in the state of Alabama. Go ahead, Wade. Now, I'm going to say that uh, there are statistics that show that they can track the inability to read to incarceration. 
And they can start tracking it right now. Look at R. Kelly. Yeah. I mean, they they can start in third, fourth grade, you know, start tracking that. So literacy is so important. And and, um, because it's not just reading, but it it provides you. Uh, Walter Dean Myers told uh, a story once. He said that um, he had established his career as a successful writer. He's, you know, written many books, sold a lot of books. And but his father never said anything about his his writing about his books he never gave him any any positive response or anything his father passes away and so he's looking through the trunk uh, of uh, that his father left and he found out through some letters and that kind of, that his father could not read mm-hmm. and he did not know that and his father's his mother had facilitated his inability to read for all those years. So his father did not, was not able to say how proud he was of his son because he had never read his books because he could not read the books because he couldn't read. Yeah. Don't forget about dyslexia too in the community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, we just got Gordon James to step in here uh, with us. What's up, brother Gordon? How you doing? Hey. Uh, I apologize. I am. I am. I had to run around today. I'm actually up in Baltimore. I'm working on a book. I was doing some book research. So but okay. I'm, I'm glad. I made, I'm glad I made it. I hope I had it at one o'clock on my um, calendar. I hope I'm not late. You're very late, but we're going to excuse, excuse you. Oh, my goodness. I apologize. I apologize. Hey, Gordon, how you doing, man? Hey, Wade. I, I and I'm, I'm sorry to everybody else who was. Um, doing the right thing this morning so so we we can let gorgeous jump right here in terms of what we're talking about representation uh in books and you being an illustrator you can't you really came at at a perfect time but that's what we were just kind of getting to the the selling of books and how to make it sexy i think that's what you know illustrators do in terms of their role in the market of the book they're they're illustrating our books so just kind of give us an idea how you know when you start creating books for young people uh, I don't need to say use words sexy for young people, but how do you make it uh, where they gravitate for it? What do you think about that process? I try to think about, um, especially a lot of times when I'm doing books, I try to think about, um, especially when I'm doing black books, I try to think that, oh, we have a lot of different skin tones. We live in a lot of different places. You know, we've had a lot of different um, uh, experiences. And so, like, the main character may be a specific character. But I try to, I try to, um, and, and I'm illustrating him, but I try to have people that look like people they're going to encounter in, the, uh, in, in their neighborhood, in their community, in their diaspora. Like just whatever I can do to try to get a lot of the different things that make our Blackness so beautiful. I try to find them in the books and whether they're in the main character or whether it's just somebody walking through the background. That's yeah, because that's important. So, t- so Tony, I know Tony, you've worked, both of you've worked with illustrators. So, how, so let's maybe play off of what he just talked about. How, how is that to kind of, when you talk to the illustrators you work with, how, how do you kind of play, play off of that? Well, I usually don't tell, I don't tell the illustrators what the characters look like. I mean, it's in the writing, but the, the only time I did that was when I was working on I Am Alfonso Jones and Stacey Robinson, who did, you know, all of the drawings and stuff. Whereas uh, John Jennings at the inking, he called me up and was like trying to get a, a feeling for the characters, right? So I would just give him like some pop cultural references to, to glom onto. So I say, yeah, well, you know, um, Scobie, he, lo- he kind of looks like a, a chunkier version of Richard Pryor when he had his afro. <laughs> so he's kind of like Bookman and Richard Pryor put together, you know, like that type of stuff. And so then he was able to just bust it out uh, email it to, to John. He inked it immediately. They showed it to me and I was like, oh my God, it just, it blew my mind. Cause you know, I'm a writer, but, uh, we only have five minutes left. So I'll let, I'll let, um, Gordon, you know, handle that. Cause he, he didn't have that much time. You know, you know when I, um, try to think about what a character look, looks like, I try to, uh, refer to the writing, but I, because I'm a representational artist, I love to work with reference. So I will try to find kids that look like I feel that this um, this character is going to look like, and I cast the book 
you know, and I find the kid, a mother, a father, you know, and I, and I try to really create the people and create that environment. And I kind of try to cast the book like I, like I would cast a movie. Well, you know, what's interesting with Stacey Robinson, for some reason, he had Alfonso Jones being lighter complexion. And I said, no, he's darker, you know? So we had to battle out <laughs> for the representation of what Alfonso actually looked. That was the only time that happened to me before. But you know, normally um, publishers don't like for the writer and the illustrator to collaborate together. Is that pretty much standard for you, Gordon? Because I know, um, like I'm yeah. working with E.B. Lewis now on a book and, um, you know, the manuscript is done. And so he is given freedom to interpret uh, the, the, the work, uh, the manuscript himself. Yeah, I really that's what that's that's honestly how I like it. You know, um, I like for the writer to just give me the manuscript and. You know, before I start getting a whole bunch of direction, you know, just wait to see what I'm going to do. Yeah. Because I feel like, um, you know, I live in this visual space and and I would like to hope that because it's my area of expertise, like what I'm going to come up with is going to be better than what you imagine. That's the goal. You know, um, that that's the goal. And I do know that the writer's going to look at it and and have and, you know, and get a very strong opinion about about what it should be. But I would at least love that first opportunity before we start doing all the communications for me to be like, this is what my vision for the book is. Yeah. Well, what, I, what I've found is that in working with illustrators, um, they have brought man so much to the table that I didn't even think about as a writer, you know, so the collaboration and, and, and giving the illustrator uh, freedom to interpret the work uh, is just, just so important. I think it gives it a whole other life. Oh, we lost Gordon. I have, I have a question I'd like to ask just really quickly for for your book um, we wise we resist for Tony's book Alfonso Jones and 13 ways to look at um, black boys and for crown and I am every good thing how would you want teachers and parents to use those books like what are you hoping how could they use those books what is something that you want them to frequently <laughs> <laughs> How do you teach Alfonso Jones? I love the book. How do you, how would you want somebody to teach that? What would you want them Tiffany, to Tiffany, it's so much in there. It's just <laughs> hard to even fathom. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it could be in a college class. You could just do a whole year, I mean, a whole semester on it, you know, but it's up to the teacher. It's up to the students, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I can't impose myself. I'm just glad that they're using it, you know. Sometimes people well, look for themes, though, and they would like help with the theme. So what would you suggest, if anything? Well, you know, mo most, most, um, books today have uh, teacher's guides mm -hmm. where they yeah, have suggestions. Guide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gordon, you want to, Tony and I have been you know, talking, I, you, you want to? I feel like um, with Crown and I'm Every Good Thing, I think that those books can just be read any time. I feel like they're very, very universal themes. I feel like they star African-American boys and they're really for African-American boys, but I feel like anybody can relate to these books. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, um, you know, uh, when you go see a movie, and I, I just think about all the stories that I read when I was a kid. Most of the characters were white and I was expected to learn the lessons and relate to that character. And I think that mm -hmm. the characters and uh, the main characters in uh, I'm Every Good Thing and Crown are very, very relatable. And I think that those books are great for the black kids that are that that look for the kids that look like the main characters of the book, and they're great for the kids that don't. Mm -hmm. So it's that you know that whole was it the window in the mirror thing. Yes. So, so yeah, I don't I don't think that there's any time when any time or place where those books are not great. And going earlier, we talked about uh, what got uh, Tony and, and Wayne. We asked them what got them inspired. What was it? So in terms of uh, illustrating, what was it that got you going in terms of being an illustrator when it hit you? Uh, well, what got me going in, in terms of being an illustrator, um, I come from a very artsy family. You know, um, we actually just uh, lost my cousin Percy, who was a painter. He was 99. And I have a cousin named Dave, who's about 10 years older than me. And he's a comic book artist. And he's done a whole bunch of great projects. And so for me, it was like, um, and my dad's very talented, too. 
and he's a police officer, but you know, he can draw and he can sing. And so, you know, I just had a whole lot of creativity around me. And that that um that that generation, like my dad's generation and my cousin Percy's generation, they had a lot of talent, but everybody went into more safe, secure, mainstream jobs. And they worked to put me, people like me and my cousin, where we could live like we didn't we didn't have to have any fear about like how we're going to eat how we're going to you know and so so like that's the inspiration it's a it's it's a lot of my my family my immigrant grandparents too you know like I just think about um the privilege I have to be able to have such a fun job and a job that's risky you know and so so those are the main those are my big inspirations Yeah, any questions out there, Tiff, you see online? Whoa, a lot. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> um, Tony, you were trying to make a point? Yeah, I was going to say what Alfonso Jones, I remember last winter, Stacey Robinson was doing these things where they were, he had this collective um, go online and they were reading, actually, they did a reading of Alfonso Jones, like weekly. <laughs> they continued on. It was <laughs> It was, in, and he invited me on. And I was like, I was just there. I was like, incredible. Just hear it performed. That could be a way to teach it, you know, where they actually mm -hmm. read it aloud and bring it to life and then discuss issues. But go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. No, I think as a librarian, a lot of times I work at a school uh, teacher training program. And a lot of times teachers come to me, how do I use this? That's the thing. It's one thing to say you could do anything, but there are teachers coming from a majority who don't understand the culture in the same way and need those cues to understand how to use the book. You know what, if I can jump in, I've seen lessons with Crown where they've had kids like um, write and illustrate the things that they feel like that things that they do that make them feel really good about themselves and crown the young man gets a haircut and he just talks about how, how, um, how, you know, like all the different ways in that it's going to affect him for the better. And we, and I've seen really great lessons where kids will do um, either do pages or little books of what makes them good. What are the best things about them um, with I'm every good thing. Also, I'll it's follow really neat the things they come up with. Alfonso Jones has a free teacher's guide that you could just access on the Lee and Lowe website, leeandlow.com, so that yeah. helps. Yeah, exactly. We Rise has a teacher's guide too, okay. and, and a poster. Well, I was gonna ask you, Tiffany, um, what is your experience with uh, audio books? in the library setting. I, I'm a big proponent of what they call multimodal learning, which is any way that they can interpret that information, however it goes in, have it. I mean, graphic novels, audio books, I'm a proponent of it because kids understand and take in information differently. So if they have to hear it to be able to have a context to understand it, I'm all for it. Any way that they can get it because you want them to understand the story and once they start appreciating that, then they'll t maybe take more time with that book. But sometimes we throw books in front of kids and they get so anxious about it, it makes it harder for them and kind of builds that wall. So if it takes a narrator, especially when you get a, an audio book with a great narrator who could really act out the story and the voices and things like that, it's, it's a way of engagement. So I can't, as somebody who was a teacher and a librarian, Please, if that's what it takes to bring that kid into a book, let it be. If it's a comic book or a graphic novel, let it be, because it's going to build onto something else. Hey, I see a nice comment on here from one of our, uh, my comment, Amber Saylor. She's an uh, educator, teacher, English professor. She mentioned back, almost back to the point of, you know, getting people to, young people to love writing. She's, I think doing a better job of showing how writing and reading is actually a part of all, all we love and enjoy really giving young people to, to, to understand it. That's a great point. Thank you so much for that, Emerson. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so we're about coming to an end. So uh, let's try to get a closing comment for each one of you. Hey, everybody that came in, please share this video. It's going to stay up on Facebook or they can come to uh, uh, We Are Here uh, page. Uh, we're serious about this. we got other yes. sessions coming up in the near future. Thank you, awesome brothers, for being a part of the very first in Harvard. You kicked this off. You kicked this shit off. Excuse my length. Can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hey, it was cool. Uh, we enjoyed uh, every minute of it. 
Tony, Wayne, Gordon, yes. so thank you so much. So hey, um, yeah, definitely all, all the books that are out there. Hey, Tony and Wayne, y'all had me digging up some stuff too. Tony, Committed to Breathing, who is at Third World Press. This book is such an epitome of what's happening now in the world. The state capital mm -hmm. is 2003. January, yep. January. And look, yep. Yep. Kick it. this book came out when, Tony? 2003. Mm. The year of Call Up Letters to Santa Claus came out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so me and Tony worked together on this project as well. Well, later. That's a beautiful cover, man. That brother died, mm. man. I and I. Mm. Bob Marley. Oh, what's that one right there, man? The one that looks like me. Not yeah. Me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you got over here. Way you got classics. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a collection of poetry by Wade Hudson. Yeah, okay. and, and yes. Tony, Tony did the Tony did an introduction to it. Can y'all give some parting advice to um, black boys and young black men of what you would want to say to them this year um, in terms of literacy and reading? Um, can you please give them a, advice or a and their parents and their parents? Yeah, and their parents. Yes, I would say parents take your kids to the library on a regular if you can. Surround them with books, give them books, even, you know, movies and have discussions around those things. But um, for the kids, don't be, don't be embarrassed about loving to read. Don't be shy about it. Don't hide it. Don't keep it in your, your, your book bag. I used to have books on me all the time when I was a kid. You know, I started reading seriously when I was 15. So a lot of these kids have a head start on me. You know, I would have big baggy um, you know, jackets with big pockets and stuff like that, cargo pockets or whatever, and I'll have paperbacks in there. Be on the subway in New York, on the buses, read, you know, not having somebody in front of me is picking their nose and stuff like that. So I could be able to just read and block out the crowd. Yeah, and don't be afraid to follow your dreams and carry a notepad and a pen at all times. Don't rely on devices only. That's about Oh, okay. So, so if I were to say something uh, to young kids, uh, I would say, um, don't stop reading. I used to read a lot, like when I was little, 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 and then I didn't read too much through my teens. And then I started doing books, which made me start reading. And then just recently, and I'm 48, I just started buying a whole bunch of books because sometimes you start thinking, well, I don't like to read. Then I realized what I enjoy reading is I love history and I love short stories. I love books that are like combinations of like lots of newspaper articles. I like things in in short bites. So like reading comes in a tons of different in a tons of different forms. So if you're not a long novel person, maybe you're a comic book person, maybe you're a short story person, but figure out what it is you like to consume and consume that. You know and as far as uh, what my, my first, first love, which is the visuals, like um, if there are museums in your area, a lot of them have free nights, just go look at everything. And just, know, and, and just my big piece of life advice is that you belong everywhere. You belong in the fanciest neighborhood and the hood is hood. You know, like there are no there are no limits to the places where you can go and be comfortable. This entire world is yours and you belong in all those spaces. Do not limit yourself. Yeah, I just want to ditto what uh, what Gordon has said, but for boys, black boys in particular, reading is cool. Reading is cool. But I wanted to share this uh, message with, uh, with parents. It is so important to introduce reading to your child or your children when they are very young. And it is important for your children when they are growing up to see you read because you can be that role model uh, for them. And, uh, Make sure that there are books around the house. Yeah. You know, yeah. So that when they when they are moving around, they'll see a book. And sometimes 
particularly with boys, they'll pick up a book when nobody's looking and then they're reading it, you know. So learn to establish a reading, a family reading tradition. And your children will grow up in that tradition and they will be readers. It's got a very quick question. I know we say we want this. This is the last point, but I had on my list going any recommendations for parents in terms of art supplies, inexpensive that they can get. Oh, okay. So check this out. I feel like everybody should have a sketchbook, and even hardbound sketchbooks, and like in a lot of places, are under ten dollars, right? If you don't have a sketchbook, you can just take some computer paper, you know, line or online, and just fold it. You know, uh, have someone get, find your ask your teacher if you can staple a corner. That's all you need. And then newsprint is the best surface ever. And it's cheap, like 18 by 24 pads, like under $10 with 50 sheets of paper in them. So like, I'm a professional and and I'm, I was just teaching my niece and she's 13 years old and I got all the materials in the world and we're just mowing through newsprint. And the other thing is, try to draw things you don't know how to draw. Look at things and try to draw them. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. It's only paper. There's lots of paper. It's okay. Just what about what about what about the crepe, the, the color pit, the pit painting, the crayons? So I really feel like um you could just start out with your regular number two pencil. I love charcoal pencils. You know, I'm a I'm a big and they're not that expensive either. You know, dollar fifty, two bucks a pencil, not that bad. But you can start out with a regular number two pencil. That's how I started. It's number two pencil drawing in my uh drawing in my school notebooks probably at the wrong times during class but but yeah man like like just tr try to make that you know um available to your kids you know this is one other thing we we're talking about with the books and Wade said leave books around for kids to find sometimes you know we look at like oh how many books are on the coffee table well it's not clutter if it's inspirational you know what yeah, i mean yeah so yeah like, yeah so like leave it around and um and 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 um when I didn't have a big studio I had an easel and we have a little house that's right next to the dining room table. It drove me and my wife a little crazy that it was just sitting there, but it has to be there or I'm not gonna do it. So you gotta make the things you want to do easy to do. That's and so right. if you if you if you want your kids to read, the books have to be out. If you want the kids to draw. The, the, the drawing materials have to be out. You got to try to carve out a little space, you know? And so, and so like um, what you may give up in order, you may gain in watching your kid really latch on to something. There are always going to be several basketballs around the house, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. We got that. Hey, uh, thank you so much. Cliff, Chief, you want to close it out for us? Yes, I just want to say thank you for um, participating in our first event on We Are Here Literature. Please go to weareherelit.org to see more resources that are available. Support these authors and illustrators that are showing reflections of us in our community here today and others. Go to your independent Black bookstores, all of that. Support our community so we can produce more is what we're saying. And um, we'll see you the next time. Thank you for coming. Our more black artists and illustrators to come to your communities. Write those grants. Yes. Thank, thank you, Tiffany and Pat. Great, great, great panel. Thanks, everybody. Great. It was good to see you. Take care, Johnny. Martin, take care. Take care, fellas. All right. Bye, y'all. Thank you, brother Wade. All right. Bye-bye. Right. We'll play us out. Y'all go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well done. All right.